Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. Peg Bukema shares this story here. She said a young boy had just gotten his driving permit, and he asked his father if they could discuss his use of the family car. His father took him into his study, and he said, I'll make a deal with you. You bring your grades up, study the Bible a little, get your hair cut, and we'll talk about it. After about a month, the boy came back and again his father, and asked his father again if they could discuss the use of the car. They went into the father's study once again, where the father turned to his son and he said, Son, I've been very proud of you. You brought your grades up. You've studied the Bible diligently, but you still didn't get your hair cut. What's up with that? The young man said, You know, Dad, I've been thinking about this. Look, in the Bible, Samson had long hair, and that's where he got his strength. And Moses had long hair. Noah had long hair. And even Jesus had long hair. He pulled out the Jesus card. And his father said, yes, son, that's true. But have you ever noticed that everywhere they went, they walked? (laughs) (laughs) Boom, dad wins again. I love it. You know, today we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus was fully human, just like you are, just like I am. That he was and is a man, is even, and also that he was and is fully God. The humanity of Jesus is really important to those of us who follow him. We have to believe that he gets us. If he is fully human, we can trust that he gets us and is able to deal completely with what it means to be human and to dwell in what we call a body, who's God in a bod. We also know that He alone can reconcile us to God because He stands between us and God as the only one who is fully God and fully human and who can carry human sin. But as I start today, I want to stress above all else that God understands you and understands your story and He gets you. He gets your pain and He gets our stuff because He's lived down here and experienced the full gamut of what it means to be human. You know, I shared in the first service that in 1995, a a song came out, many of you will remember it, and uh, it was a song about God, you know, it was a song about um, what if God was one of us. Do you remember that song? Just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. How many of you remember that song? Those of you who are 90s kids, right? Right? And, you know, I remember when it came out, having a lot of mixed feelings about it, and, and uh, you know, I heard some people really criticize it, and they talked about the fact that it was kind of, you know, sacrilegious. But the more I reflected on it, the more I recognized that it was the cry of a generation. It was, the cry, it was a hard cry coming out. It was saying, we want a God who gets us, who's approachable, who's understandable. And the sad thing is, is the truth is, is that Jesus is God being one of us. He is the one who came down and took on a body. He is the one who experienced 
the full spectrum of human experience. And He gets us in and inside and out like no one else. Amen? Now, my text for today is from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And I want to read it here in the New Living Translation. I want you to see this. Just the text alone is really powerful. It says this, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could He die. And only by dying could He break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could He set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for Him to be made in every respect like us, His brothers and sisters, so that He could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then He could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Isn't that powerful? I mean, that text says it all. God gets you. He understands what it means to be human. And we can relate to him because he relates to us. And so why is that important? Jesus the man, why is it important? Well, We know throughout the history of the church, there have been a lot of false teachings about Jesus. In many of those teachings, He's not God, and He's just human, who's kind of divinely touched and anointed one. And in other teachings, He's just God, and He's not human enough. And we see throughout the history of the church and throughout the Roman Empire that these different false teachings, even 2,000 years ago, they began to spread. And some of the letters that we read that we call the New Testament are directly addressing these ideas about Jesus. For instance, the book of Colossians is all about an error about Jesus that was beginning to circulate. The, the book of Hebrews, the book we just read from, Hebrews was also addressing false teachings about Jesus. And 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, all three of those letters were addressing an early heresy that began to spread about the nature of Jesus. These false teachings either denied His divinity, that He is God, or His humanity. And even now, currently, certain cult groups have embraced ancient false teachings. A lot of times we we hear there's a new group or a new idea or a new doctrine or a new way of thinking that's out there. But I want to tell you something. As Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. There is only the recirculation of false ideas and false teachings. And so we're going to look at what some of these early false teachings were and then we're going to talk about Jesus' humanity. Now, I'm uh, taking some of my material today from an organization called the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, and I'm going to share some long names, some, some big words right now. Don't be intimidated by the words because the ideas are ancient. In fact, I would say that many of them go all the way back to the garden when a serpent slithered his way in there and said, has God really said? So the first uh, false teaching or false doctrine I want to talk about was an early doctrine known as adoptionism. 
And this taught that Jesus did not pre-exist with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and that God granted Jesus powers and then adopted him as a son. So after he became a man and he grew up, there came a point where God granted him special powers, adopted him as a son, and then Jesus began to operate in his ministry. The scripture teaches that Jesus pre-existed all the way back into ancient eternity with the Father and the Holy Spirit in what Christians call the Trinity. Secondarily, there was a teaching known as Apollinarianism. And Apollinarianism taught that Jesus' divine will, the fact that he was deity, that he was God, overshadowed and replaced his human will. So he didn't really have a human will. He was only divinely inspired. And what this did was it lessened the human nature of Jesus. Thirdly, there was a doctrine that spread throughout early Christianity and almost won the day, and it was known as Arianism. Arianism taught that Jesus was a lesser created being who was created before the rest of creation. Then, he, then through, cre- through him, he created, and then he was adopted by the Father. Okay, and, and just so you know, some of these teachings are still around today in contemporary cults. And I, I want you to know that I'm not trying to slam people. I'm talking about ideas, okay? There's a difference between people and ideas, People can be caught up in wrong ideas, amen? Not every truth is equal. Contrary to popular opinion and what you hear out there, well, that's true for you and it works for you, that is false. There has to be some kind of objective reality and objective truth. And one group today that has embraced Arianism is the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses teach Arianism, and that's what what they actually believe and spread, that Jesus was a lesser created being. He was not Yahweh. He was not the one true God. And then there's what's known as doceticism. And doceticism taught that Jesus was divine, but only seemed to be human. This error teaches that he never really had a body. And believe it or not, Jehovah's Witnesses teach that after Jesus, after the resurrection, Jesus never appeared in a body. He never appeared in a form. It was more like a hologram. Isn't that interesting? He was more like a ghost. And so this is really important that we understand what the Scripture teaches. We know in the Scripture when Jesus rose from the dead, the Scripture says He ate and they touched Him and handled Him. And He turned to Thomas and He said, look at the holes in my wrists and in my side. Go ahead, Thomas, put your hand there. How many of you know that's hard to do with a hologram? Am I talking to anybody today? Now, let me make it clear. I'm not slamming people. I'm talking about false teaching and false ideas. People are precious to God and He wants to reach Him. Amen. Then there's monophysitism. I know you're like, say what? And that taught that Jesus only had one nature, and that nature was divine. This error diminished the human nature of Jesus. And then there was Socianism. Socianism denied the Trinity and taught that Jesus was a deified man. So he was a man that kind of took on God, but he was a man, just a deified man. And then the last one, and there are more, believe it or not, but the last one I want to share is what's known as subordinationism, that the Son is lesser than the Father in essence or attributes. So he's not quite fully God, he's kind of a lesser God, and he's below the Father. That was subordinationism, and that too was an error and a false teaching. So what does the Bible teach? Well, I'm going to pull out a a 50-cent theological word. But the Bible teaches what's known as the hypostatic union. And the hypostatic union is just simply this. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now say this with me. Not 50%. 100%. 
So Jesus isn't like 50% man and 50% God making 100%. He's fully God, 100%, fully man, 100%, two natures fused into one. In fact, he's God who took humanity into him, not the other way around. He wasn't a man that took divinity into him. He was preexistent, second person of the Trinity, God who took human nature into himself. That's what happened. This same organization that um, I just shared from a moment ago, they define the hypostatic union like this. Listen to this. The hypostatic union is the doctrine, the Christian doctrine, that in one person of Jesus, there are presently two distinct natures, the divine and the human. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is fully God and fully man. Thus, he has two natures, God and man. He's not half God and half man. As I said already, he's not 100%, but he is 100% God and 100% man. He never lost his divinity. He continued to exist as God when he became a man, and he added human nature to himself. Therefore, there is a union in one person of a full human nature and a full divine nature. Even now, in heaven, there is a man, Christ Jesus. If right now you were to suddenly breathe your last, some of you are like, oh no, don't talk like that, it might happen. Breathe your last, and you were in the presence of God, and you appeared before God. You know what you would see? You would see an actual man in a glorified body, Jesus Christ. But here's what's interesting. Though he would be in a human body, that human body cannot and will not ever contain him. He's without boundary. He has no outer border. He spills over into all of creation. Beyond that, he, all of creation is contained within him. Now think about that. We think about God dwelling in heaven... Yes, God dwells in heaven, but you know heaven doesn't hold him. He holds heaven, for he is without boundary. All of creation, everything known and unknown, everything seen and unseen, all of it is contained with God, and God has no outer edge and no boundary. He is infinite. He's infinite in knowledge, infinite in power, infinite in his presence. He's everywhere present all the time. He is beyond containable. Boom. Now, here's the trippy thing. That same God became one of us. Okay, just stick that in your pipe and smoke and think about it for a few minutes. And for this reason, Jesus alone could reconcile God and humanity because he's fully God and fully man. Look at 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. It says, for there is one God. Do we have that text? There we go. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, their sin brought spiritual death and a break in fellowship between God and humanity. God spent the entire Old Testament that whole story is about him pursuing his own people so, so he could prepare our world for a full invasion and reconciliation. And when he invaded, he didn't come on the clouds in power. That's his second coming. He didn't come with all of the angels riding a white horse saying, here I am in power to take over and invade. He came as a babe. He came as a seed. And he was planted in death. And he gave his life. That's the nature of God. Jesus came to show us what the Father is like. The Father is not just power, not just greatness. The power is humanity. The, the Father is humility and weakness and lowliness. He came as a baby, and he invaded planet Earth. 
And what did he do? He came to plant himself in human hearts and begin the slow process through us of reconciling human beings to him using people like you and me. Boom, baby. That's amazing. Where am I at here? Okay, the only way to be reconciled required mediation and someone to bear the sin of humanity. Jesus as God and human was the only one qualified to mediate that relationship between God and humanity. He laid his body across the gap of sin on a Roman cross and he brought God and people back together again. The cross is so powerful. It's such a powerful symbol. You know, if you look back in our corner, we have a cross back there. We have a vertical beam. We have a horizontal beam, right? And the vertical beam is the relation, the divine relationship between God and human beings. And the horizontal beam are the broken relationships between human beings. And we know that at the cross, as Jesus hung there, he was reconciling the world back to God, but he was also reconciling people back to people. We learn that in Ephesians chapter 2. The cross becomes a place of reconciliation, and Jesus alone was qualified because he's both God and man. Now, what are some examples of Jesus' humanity? Well, first thing, we've already seen this over and over again, he assumed a human nature. He took on a body. We know he had human descent. We can track his, his family line in Matthew chapter 1. We know in Romans 1, 3, it says that he had a human descent of family. He had a normal body which could be handled and touched. We see that throughout the scripture. He had a soul. He cried out to the Father when he was about to die, my soul is sorrowful unto death. We know that he partook of all of the normal human experiences we do. He had joy. He had sadness. He had tears. He he wept at Lazarus' tomb. And the scripture said when the disciples came back from doing ministry and saw great things happen, the scripture says that Jesus in that same hour rejoiced. And the Greek word for rejoiced means that he jumped and he leapt and he spun like a top. Some of us have this idea of Jesus that we see in old middle-aged paintings, right, where his his cheeks are kind of sucked in and he looks like this all the time. And we think Jesus is a bummer. Man, dude's a bummer. Needs a smile every once in a while. Well, the, the Jesus of the Bible, it says that he, he leapt, he spun, he rejoiced. So he gets us. He, he knows the joys of celebration, and he knows the pain and the suffering and the sorrow of rejection. He's been through it all. We know that he was born a normal birth, okay? He didn't have some supernatural birth, okay? It wasn't like, pow, Jesus is here. It was all the screaming and the pain and the blood and all of it. That's the reality of our Savior's birth. We knew that, we know that he grew and he developed like any child would. Jesus went through puberty. Come on. Jesus used the bathroom. I know. Some of you just tripping out right now. We need to, we need to recognize that he gets us. He was hungry, he was thirsty. He was tired, he slept, he was tempted, he suffered, and he died. He most closely identifies with us through his death. Jesus Christ is distinct from human beings in that his death was an act of free will and not the inevitable consequence of his sin. You know why you and I die? Because we sin. Because of sin. That's why human beings die. Sin. 
It works its work in us. And eventually we pay that. The wages of sin is death. And we get that paycheck. But Jesus never sinned. Death wasn't inevitable in his life. Well, I guess it was because he came to die. And he came to die willingly. He put himself on a cross to take our penalty and our sin, our judgment, our death on himself to reconcile us back to the Father. Amen? So I want to go back to the text I started with and and just talk about how he gets us, he feels us, he understands us. Look at Hebrews 2.14 through 18 again. And let's look at some of the realities to this text. Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could He die. And only by dying could He break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could He set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels... He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every... Notice this. It was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. That was himself. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us when we are being tested. Now, I've already covered this in a lot of this message, but here are some things to take away from this as we, as we come in for a landing today. The first thing is, because we are human, Jesus had to become human so He could die for us. You know, in the Old Testament, Jesus appeared sometimes. I don't know how many of you know that. Theolog- theologians call it a Christophany's appearance. He would show up in the Old Testament and he would look like a man. He talked to Abraham that way and Abraham called him the Lord. There are several appearances throughout the Old Testament where he would temporarily show up as a man and he would appear and, and speak with his people and then he would disappear off the scene. This is not that. In this incarnation, him becoming enfleshed in a body, he went through conception, birth, the whole process, supernatural conception, yes, but he went through the whole process of the human experience. He had to die as a human to break the power of the devil, death, and our fear of death. We know that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned as the first humans, and sin and death spread to all humanity through all time. Jesus, as a man, has become a new head of a new kind of human. And this is really important for us to understand. I want you to notice that he broke the power of the devil and death and our fear of death. Why is that important? Well, because, you know, we're, we're good Westerners. We are a part of Western civilization. We esteem reason. We put science really high, right? And sometimes we see science as being in conflict to Scripture, and it's not. But many times what we do is we say, well, you know, I don't know about demons. I don't know about devils. I don't know about that stuff. That stuff seems a little weird to me. I don't know if it's real. Let me tell you something. It's real. I've personally experienced and had encounters with evil presence. And I shared a story a few weeks ago with you of a time that, of one of many times that we saw a young man be liberated from demonic possession. And we saw evil spirits come out of him. We know that there is a figure that appears throughout the entirety of Scripture. 
And we know that that figure has many, many companions. And those spiritual beings are malevolent. They're out to steal, kill, and destroy. They're out to rob human beings from their destiny and their purpose and ultimately to deceive us and blind our minds to the reality of the God who loves us and gave His Son for us. And when Jesus died on the cross, the Scripture teaches that He defeated the devil and demons and stripped them. Made an open show and triumphed over them. And he beat death. And that's big. Because death's the big one. That's the one we're all going to face, right? Have you thought about it lately? I don't mean in a morbid kind of way, but have you faced the reality that you're going to die? You need to. You need to. I know if you're younger, you think you're going to live forever. You're not. I remember being younger yesterday. Amen? It just happened. And all of a sudden, I'm like, what happened to my hair? Right? And you're like, you know, I went and started playing basketball with these guys a few months ago. That only lasted for three weeks. I'm like, I won't be joining you next week, guys. In my mind's eye, I saw myself floating through the air and doing a finger roll. But when I jumped, nothing happened. You see, you age, things happen, life goes right, and you begin, the, the older you get, the more you begin to face the reality that I'm going to die. And, and though a lot of us are in denial about it, we really do, many of us really do fear death. In fact, you know, some people say, no, I don't, I'm not afraid of death, but I hate spiders, or I hate snakes, or I hate being in a small room. Do you know that I believe that every fear is tied to the fear of death? And if you break the back of the big one, death, if you break the fear of death, you break all the other phobias that go with it. Why is that? Why are you afraid of spiders? Because one might bite you, and it might be poisonous, and you'll experience pain, and maybe you'll die. Why are you afraid of snakes? Why are you afraid of being in a small room? Why, why are you afraid of any of them? The fear is ultimately connected to a sense of death, separation. Jesus came and defeated death. We know he's already been there. We know he's already suffered there. We know that because he's been there, we can go there too. And we won't go there alone. You'll never go through death alone if you're a follower of Jesus. You'll have God alongside you, walking, walking you over. Can I get an amen from somebody out there that believes in Jesus Christ? Amen. Jesus, next thing it says here is Jesus came to help people, not angels. You know, angels made a one-time eternal decision in the full light of God's presence when Lucifer led a rebellion in heaven in the ancient prehistory of the creation. Angels cannot be redeemed because they fully knew what they were doing and they chose their eternal destiny once for all. But human beings were deceived by a serpent and they fell and God began a process of redeeming them because he loves us, right? So he came to help and he became one of us. Jesus didn't become an angel, he became one of us, amen. He became like us in every respect, the text says. He knows what it's like. He identified with us. It reminds me of this great little story by, in, a, in a sermon by Dr. Robert Tuttle, but he says this. This story is told of a certain nine-year-old boy who was sitting at his desk in school when all of a sudden there is a puddle between his feet and the front of his pants are wet. He thinks in his heart that his heart is going to stop. Because he knows when the other boys in the classroom find out, he'll never hear the end of it. And when the girls find out, they'll never speak to him again as long as he lives. The boy puts his head down and he prays a little prayer to God. Dear God, this is an emergency. I need help now. 
Five minutes from now, I'm dead meat. He looks up from his prayer, and here comes the teacher with a look in her eyes that says he's been discovered. As the teacher's coming to snatch him up, a classmate named Susie is carrying a goldfish bowl filled with water. She stumbles and dumps the goldfish bowl right in his lap. He pretends to be angry, but he prays, Thank you, Jesus. I'm born again. Now, rather than being the object of ridicule, this kid is the object of sympathy. The teacher rushes him downstairs and gives him gym shorts to put on while his pants dry out. When he comes back to class, all the kids are on their hands and knees cleaning up around his desk. This this sympathy is wonderful, but as life would have it, the ridicule that should have been his has been transferred to Susie. She tries to help, but they tell her to get out. You've done enough, you klutz. As the day progresses, the sympathy gets better and better, and the ridicule gets worse and worse. Finally, at the end of the day, they're waiting at the bus stop, and the boy walks over to Susie and whispers, Susie. You did that on purpose, didn't you? And Susie whispers back, I wet my pants once too. Now that's a silly, cute little story. But she got him. She felt him. She identified with him. And Jesus Christ has done that infinitely beyond anything we can even begin to imagine for us. He's gone the full way, all the way down into the grave and all the way back again. Jesus as a human could become our merciful and faithful high priest and he could offer the sacrifice of himself. Think about it. He's not only the priest who mediated between us and the Father, but he himself is the sacrifice. He brought the sacrifice and the sacrifice was not a lamb, not a ram, not a bull, but a man himself. He gave himself. And because Jesus has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us when we are tested. Amen. He understands our suffering. He's been there, done that. He got the t-shirt. He's the God who became one of us. What if God were one of us? He has been and is even now. He gets you. He understands the rejection you go through, the suffering, the pain. He gets all of the the sin that you battle with. He understands temptation. Remember, he went into a garden just before he went to the cross and he cried out to his father, Father, if it be your will, let this cup of death pass from me. Nevertheless, Not my will, but your will be done. And as he prayed this, and as he wrestled with this, and as he struggled with that great temptation, he ultimately sweat so intensely that drops of blood mingled with his sweat, and he began to pour out his blood even in the garden as he interceded on our behalf. He knows you. He gets you. He loves you. He's for you. If you've been running, if you've been going your own way, why don't you just stop? Some people say, well, I'll come to God once I clean up my act. I'll come to God when I turn over a new leaf. When I quit doing the stuff I know I shouldn't be doing. When I get over my addiction, then I'll come to God. When I get through this life event, then I'll turn to God. And they continually make 
all kinds of excuses because they've wrongly assumed that you have to make yourself acceptable to God and then God accepts you. What the gospel teaches is that you come with your ugliness. You come with your sin. You come with your addiction. You come with the things that you're ashamed of. You come with all of it. You take all your stuff, all your messes, all that crap that you've been carrying around in your life and you bring it to God. You bring it to the foot of the cross and you say, I bring it to one who knows me, who gets me, who died for me, who took my death, who took my judgment, who took my sin. I bring it all to him and I lay it at his feet and I do this divine exchange. Here you go, Jesus. My sin, my death, my garbage, my shame, my guilt, I give it all to you. And he says to you, and I give you my righteousness, my holiness, my forgiveness, my love, my acceptance, my adoption. You're a child of God. You're in the family. You're part of me. I give it all to you. That's the gospel, the divine exchange. And that's what he came for. He came for you. Right as you are today, right in your mess. Amen?